0: Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS.
1: Hey, Rusty. Why are we uh, partnering with SGS?
0: Uh, uh, some, some, Some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready. So when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching... Teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really.
1: So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing?
0: I think it will be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported, and will leave, yeah, you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there.
1: SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programs. The programs are designed to develop unique, innovative, and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now.
0: Cool, uh, love. Of- Odd, live from my bed, uh, Barry Ferns, how are you mate, you well?
2: I'm all right, thanks mate. Hey, I'm, I'm not in my bed, but uh, we couldn't make it <laughs> two guys
0: in a bed, but um, I'm in my room and uh, my front room, doing all right. Beautiful, well look, uh, thanks for jumping on and to give it a little bit of context, uh, we have Claire Murphy to thank for this. I've been for ages wanting to get someone who was a comedian on I, tr- I think I tried one of my jokes on you. It was the uh, Reese uh, uh, Reese uh, Witherspoon uh, joke. And, um, yeah, I was just curious about c- comedy and comedians and feedback and dying on stage and all of that. I'm sure we're going to explore uh, all of
2: that. dying on stage quite a bit, actually, yeah. Like a, it's like a personal, <clears throat> personal uh, kind of fear.
0: Yeah, well, and interestingly, when I asked coaches about their first time coaching or their first meeting or you know then it's quite a common occurrence that people would either have imposter syndrome or they would struggle to tell that story because of the feelings it invokes and I've already got those feelings inside me now so look I'm, I'm sure we'll explore lots of that stuff. Uh, do you want to kind of give a brief history of you and your 32 other cousins or 31 other cousins is it? <laughs> yeah, I know, I come from Dorset, so uh,
2: some of them um, are marriages as well. Um, I've, I, I come from Dorset, uh, kind of one Yeah, one of 36 cousins, um, and uh, I started stand-up when I was 16 years old. Um, there are three ways out of pool. The one way is um, uh, gangs, the other way is basketball, and the other way is comedy. Um and the other way is the A30. Um, but uh, you, uh, I basically started stand-up when I was about 16, and then 17, did some national competitions, and then went to university, for the only cousin to go to university in, um, in my uh, family at the time, and um, so we were just very working class, and then went to uni, and um, yeah, and what, what I did, I basically went to university in London purely to do stand-up. I didn't think about which university I was going to. It was like, oh, well, you got to be in London. So um, went there and then moved from London after a couple of years to um, Galway in Ireland and lived four years in Galway. That's where I met Claire Murphy. And, um, uh, and then went on a year, well, six-month silent meditation retreat in Southeast Asia um, and then came back to do a load of uh, a load more comedy in London. So yeah, that was that's my kind of potted history. And um, I presently I've won awards for comedy. I've written for uh, the BBC, uh, Channel Four. I'm uh, yeah I, I've uh, I, I started the I guess the busiest comedy club in London. Um, or the second busiest maybe um, called Angel Comedy who that is just it kind of built up around me it grew from being one gig a week to 52 different gigs a week in one venue and um, you know and Eddie Izzard built his last show there and you know uh, we've get massive comedians there Every, any comedian on tv you'll have there um, and I tour around the world doing comedy I, I uh, did a a lot. two years ago was my busiest year but i did a corporate gig in hawaii that was beautiful um uh kind of all around scandinavia and eastern europe and asia and you just move around i moved around a lot and um but uh, yeah so and i divide my time i've got an ma in creative writing and i divide my time between performing stand-up running the club Um, teaching a bit I've done a good bit of teaching in schools and uh, the city lit night school for adults so yeah done loads of stuff.
0: Wow Uh, my first thought was what does a kind of a national schools comedy cup look like so I was like already interested in like so you said oh you started at 16 I was thinking what was I doing then probably got a magic set for Christmas a couple of years before that (laughs) <laughs> I might you know might have been a magician or was it the chemistry set and I was going to be a chemist like what what gets you into this um I don't know mate I, like, honestly
2: I was reading jokes out of a joke book with a torch under my covers at the age of eight years old into a tape recorder and then listening back to the joke so that is not a lie that's what I was oh. doing yeah so i mean lord knows why i i did that and you know the tragedy was is for years right when i was younger i wasn't funny i was that annoying twat that just wanted to be funny and wasn't and um it was it wasn't until i got to about the age of 14 15 that i cracked being funny i figured it out like and i would be watching um like comedy videos over and over again writing everything down i was you know i'd kind of absolutely scored where the jokes were, how people kind of did jokes at the age of kind of 14. I figured out bits of it. And ultimately, the biggest thing that made me funny when I was about 14 was uh, confidence. Like it just my confidence shifted. I went I went to Canada and um, spent a, uh, six weeks in the summer holidays there and everyone loved me because I was English. And I came back just with a totally different kind of like, yeah, uh, kind of emotional mindset. And then then you're funny. I mean, confidence is everything with comedy. I mean, you know, I think it's a, it's everything with life, really. But that's what changed.
0: Yeah, it'd be pretty important coaching. We'll definitely come back to Who? which comedians were you watching? So who were your kind of heroes at that time? Jack
2: D um, was on TV a lot. Um, He was brilliant. Uh, Lee Evans. I mean, I kind of I I used to go at the age of 14. I went to Glastonbury Festival and I just sat in because live comedy wasn't around too much uh, and you could get in free to Glastonbury if you're under 14 at the time. Don't know if you still can. And I just sat in the comedy tent for four days. And watched comedians in the circuit come. I was like, and then I went to every single festival I could. There was one called the Phoenix Festival, Reading Festival, and I just sit in the comedy tent. It's the age of 14, 15, 16, just kind of soaking up. Uh, all of that, and I saw everyone, you know, uh, Robert Newman, uh, David Baddiel, Harry Hill, but those are comedians that you wouldn't have heard of, that, you know, iconic, com- you know, big comedians in the circuit, like Booth Big one of the best comedians out there, still one of the best comedians out there, you wouldn't have heard of him, um, you know, Arthur Smith, who's kind of a traditional alternative comedian, and all the people in between, so I literally, Woody Bot Muddy, kind of Malcolm Hardy, kind of iconic, but only in a certain field type people, you know, um, and uh, Mark Thomas. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just got to see everyone.
0: What does, and what does like listening back to yourself? So I'll, I'll, I'll frame it in my world. Um, my view is that uh, that would be really rare that coaches and um, clearly their voices are important part of their repertoire is um, very few would kind of record themselves and then, act upon that and use that as feedback. What's the, What do you remember from that and how were you using that to build your craft? I'm curious.
2: Oh, well, I mean, I was eight when I was doing that. So at that time, I wasn't really listening to the, the kind of the, in the same way that I would do these days. But I mean, when I was, I guess when I was 14 and writing jokes then I was, you know, I was watching the acts. I was writing down jokes that I liked. I was trying to talk to them. Uh, probably being a bit annoying Um I was uh, I worked at Burger King for about three years and I'd just be doing the job that I was doing and trying to think up jokes the whole time and then kind of writing them down and like all of my set when I was much younger was mostly pun based so I was always thinking of double meanings like one of my first jokes was I was walking through the walking through the uh countryside the other day and I um I tripped up on uh, in this kind of wet ground and there was a load of frog spawn. I picked it up and read it. it was a load of toads having sex. It was very sexy, you know, so it was just a pun on frog spawn. Yeah. Um, nice. And uh, there were kind Jimmy
0: of. Oh, you were Jimmy Carr.
2: Yeah, basically, basically, because that kind of joke formation is the easiest to do. Really.
0: Right. Nice. Oh, wow. Nice. And then and then you, you and then you spoke a bit about that. Eddie Izzard as well. And like building a set like I'm definitely curious as to like so what does that look like for you now so fast forward to a few years from eight under the bed um how would Eddie how would people like you be building a set what does that mean
2: well what's fascinating is that everybody learns their own way of doing it like I always think of it if you heard the phrase patina do you know what patina is
0: no but I'm learning
2: new stuff already that's cool so patina is a type of, um, it's, it's almost like, you know, if you do something over and over again, you kind of score out a rut in something. It's like you do it again and again. It's, it's, it's almost like patina is like the copper that comes, the green hint that comes on copper if it's been weathered. It's just like day after day, you get a little bit more and a little bit more until years later, it looks totally different because the patina has you know given it some beauty in a way. Um, And so the patina of a routine is like a lot of people have their own routine that they build up. Like Eddie Izzard, watching Eddie work, he was at the club. He would do two shows a night for an hour and a half each, have like 20 minute break in between the two shows and then go out again. Eddie did most of his writing on stage. Eddie would talk things out in the dressing room, say it again and again and again. And every single show might not be massively different from each one, but he would be working it and then writing down the notes afterwards and he had to do it live i mean he'd be coming up with ideas to play around with live but he was talking it out live um you'd get other people like gary delaney or jimmy carr and they've got writers and they sit in a room and they hone a, hone a joke and they'll know pretty much how that joke plays before they perform it on stage like those are two different types of kind of ways of working but everybody has their own way of working Ramesh Ranganathan would be somebody that sits down with friends talks things over if something makes them laugh um probably write it down and try and say it on stage you know it's a lot more kind of a a friendly kind of chummy way of doing it not that it isn't written but there's you know the the honing comes in once he's got a bit to um that's made him laugh you know
0: so What, what, what about for you what works for you
2: um i'm a bit adhd so i'm uh i work best when i'm interacting with people and then my difficulty the diff the, the hardest part for me is what you mentioned so the hardest part for me is taking away the stuff that i've done and then reading it out and getting it in my head because i i'm very i can get away with being very um personable on stage and that 20 percent that makes something sing you for me I need to talk it out hone it and make it exact um so uh so yeah I would f- come up with an idea on stage or or with a friend play it out and then I have to put the work in to 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 hone it a bit yeah, yeah that's I
0: mean, it's how fascinating I as well even that how many coaches would practice their stuff in advance be it a meeting be it a session um talking through you with have- people yeah, I've seen it a few times where I saw it with a hockey coach once where she was like, she was going to do the next session and she was like walking around and talking and and, and I'd not really seen it that much before. And I said, oh, and she said, look, I'm, I work in sales and, and we practice before we do stuff. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, yeah, there's not that many coaches that are thinking like that. So well done to you well it's marginal gains
2: isn't it I mean there are so many ways of working on something but like if practicing and saying it out loud for half an hour before you go into it's going to make you 0.1% better and you've got the time to do that and it's important enough for you to be that much better then do it you know like what else would you be doing I mean you I guess you can you know watch some tv instead but like if you're passionate about something and you know a way to make what you do better then do it like and or if you don't do it question yourself why you don't do it yeah you know it's like that have you heard that um thing about um oh what's his name the swimmer um the big swimmer the the guy the record holding uh massive arms what's
0: his name uh his name is it'll come to me it's not it's not adam peaty the current one you're talking about the, the American guy with a really big... Yeah, stuff, yeah, you? yeah,
2: the freaky American guy, right? Yeah. When, when, he, when he broke that world record in Beijing, was it? His goggles went. You know this story, right? His goggles, yeah. yeah. And, like, he knew exactly how many strokes he prepared for it. He prepared mentally if he was blind. Could I swim blind? And for that eventuality. And broke a world record because of that amount of kind of preparation.
0: And his name is Michael Phelps. That's
2: it, Phelps, Phelpsy,
0: good old Phelps. Yeah. yeah. What I mean, and and so, so you've got some ideas. You've kind of talked them through with someone. You then, you know, let's. I mean, Eddie is already doing two shows a night. You're on stage. Yeah. Some of the stuff's going as well as you thought. Some stuff's going better than you thought. Some stuff's going less well. How how, how aware are you of so this is something I hear from from coaches you know the first few sessions we just want to get through it. No one to ask any questions, no one to realize we don't have a clue what we're doing and just get in the car and drive home and not talk about it again. I guess there's a how yeah how aware are you of, of them and their reactions and what you, how, how are you noticing it and are you are you tuned into the fact that some people are finding it funny, and actually the people on the left aren't, or maybe it's where I stand. And I mean, how are tuned into you the people that are that you're ultimately trying to make laugh? What What's really interesting listening to you talk is that
2: you, in you've gone in your mind, right? I mean, from a coaching perspective, you've gone in your mind to not playing football to being on stage at Wembley Arena. Like, <laughs> I know you've you've absolutely maximized the pressure on yourself of like and put yourself in like how are they going to respond how's that happening and you know like i'm sure with coaching the way you do it initially is you is you if if whatever you're playing with a football whatever pick your sport you do it in a room with a couple of people that and you start practicing skills in a low pressure situation like and that's the same with comedy. You don't just absolutely. I mean, you <laughs> yeah. can do it that
0: right? way. I, I, I was full Freddie Mercury. I'm playing Wembley live. <laughs> yeah, end. exactly. I'm, I'm yeah, well... comedy before Freddie. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> okay. um... So, so you're trying it out on uh, trusted people, people who who are who are like you, not like you. What What's that look like? Well.
2: I mean, I, I think that the best thing to do is like if you're if you're a coach and you're playing, like pick pick a thing to coach. Give me give me a score. Uh, uh, rugby, because it's my sport. Okay. So so if you're a rugby player, you is when you get on the pitch, is it the first time you've run?
0: Often. First time? Very rarely, very rarely.
2: Is it the first time you've picked up a ball? Is it the first time you've thrown a ball to somebody? Is it the first time that you've worked in a team? And like all of those skills are skills that you've got before. And it's the same with comedy. Like You make people laugh all the time, I'm sure. You laugh all the time. You have interaction with people all the time. And very light. Like somebody on stage, all somebody on stage is doing is, there is they are playing a role of letting other people relax in a conversation that they don't have to think in so they can enjoy that's what good comedy is it's it's basically a fun time they are the orchestrated fun time you know and you firstly that takes the pressure off you on stage because everybody's there for for the uh, reason of having fun Mm. you know like so um i think a lot of people when they imagine themselves doing stand-up they imagine everybody on stage uh, everybody off stage going all right be funny then the worst situation to be but everyone wants it to work right but the thing is like most people have made other people laugh all the time and you you know you you're personable you get on like so it's they are all skills that everybody has and really the the biggest skills with stand-up once you kind of get down to to, like how to write a joke Mm -hmm. and mechanics of you know certain joke mechanics then is really just um kind of getting out of your own way get out of your head and just be natural on stage because you know what everybody's a fucking idiot right and if you're on stage trying to be funny most people are but if, if you're trying to be funny most people aren't but if you're on stage being funny or just being natural most people are going to laugh along with you because they want to you know and if you've prepped and you've done the work then the the biggest work is getting out of your way it's not when people say finding your own voice It's this whole idea of finding your own voice. Finding your own voice. Everybody knows their own voice. I'm sure after speaking to me for one minute, you knew what my voice was. (laughs) Probably less. But I wouldn't know it because I'm constantly in my own head thinking, oh, maybe I should say this. What do I sound like? You have to get out your own way, you know, and trust your own kind of um, rhythm and, you know, genetics and history and who you are and not overthink it. You know, the amount of crap you have to go through from overthinking.
0: Was there a moment where you... Because I'm guessing, it's a, and I'm trying to relate to coaching, like certainly I would, when you start out, you're replicating other people you've seen, people you've been coached by, people who've made you laugh. And and then is there a point where you go, actually, I need to be me a bit more? And I, I often see that with coaches where they actually stop being themselves for a period of time. And I don't know whether that's what you're talking about with get out of the way, but they're, it's it's kind of clunky. And then actually they go, actually, I'd just be me. And just... yeah add some of these things to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I
2: think that's a think of uh, uh, an example of overthinking it in the sense of you're always going to be influenced. You know, like there was a time when a lot of comedians sounded like Stuart Lee. There's a time like you listen to Ricky Gervais. He's Stuart Lee. He's got the same intonations as Stuart Lee. He's absolutely stolen Stuart Lee's kind of not done it consciously if you listen to russell brand and then listen to early paul foot russell's totally s- stolen uh, paul foot's intonations and if you listen to joel domit you can hear james acaster like everyone kind of steals, not steals but unconsciously is influenced by people around them but i think the confidence is getting over that and just going oh i like this person and i've got a bit of that in them in me and not trying to push too hard to be yourself i think that's more of the problem trying to be yourself trying to go oh, i've got to be unique and i've got to be inv- individual. It's like yeah you're where you are you know and um and when you can relax and just go this is this is where i'm at even if you're influenced by somebody then you, i think that's healthier than trying to purge the sense of uh, being influenced you know
0: yeah when have you been at your best what's When do you look back and go, "Well, I was in, I was in absolute flow then." Twenty fourteen, I guess. I
2: um, like I couldn't really do a thing wrong in twenty fourteen, and it's purely because everything was in sync. um, And but I, what I have found is that my like I used to prevaricate a lot on stage and off stage, um, and doubt myself all kind of like is that a good idea is that and that was part of my quirk and I kind of trained I got trained out of that by an audience not liking it not a particular audience by lots of audiences not liking it because on stage people I mean in general there's no need to prevaricate that much you know there's there's you know if somebody the only reason to prevaricate or to self-doubt or to um, undermine yourself is if you think the audience is going to be critical. But if the audience are going to be critical, they're going to be critical anyway. <laughs> they're going to be critical of the fact that you are prevaricating. You can't stop or change how people are going to hear you. You know, I, I, one thing that I, I quite like that Stuart Lee said uh, once, I've kind of read it in his book, I think, but it was like, he used to really hate an audience member that wasn't enjoying him. Just like oh fucking this guy, I just got to get this guy, and now he just feels sad for them because not not in piteous way of just like um oh, you probably got a babysitter, this was your night out and you're not liking it, and I, I can't be mm-hmm. anything else. I'm me. I'm like I I can't do any. I've worked as hard as I can for you to enjoy this, but I can't change that, you know. And um I think that shift between trying to be something for everyone and just going. I've put all the work in, I've done the best I can, and I hope to God people enjoy it. But if they don't, it's not my responsibility. I'm going to do the best job that I can, but I don't have to kind of take on the responsibility of making it perfect for everyone. So that that was where that shifted in 2014, really, of going, actually, you know, I kind of, I am who I am. I'm good at what, who I, what I do, and I don't really have to be that apologetic for it as much.
0: Yeah, that would... Uh... That would resonate with a lot of coaches that I speak to and often they're you are this one kid that's causing the most trouble and taking up most of your time and and actually some other people once you start becoming focused on that then then some other people start missing out in my mind in this Wembley gig before Freddie comes on
2: <laughs> um
0: there's also some heckling so it started out, you know, they cheered and then it went quiet after my first joke, which wasn't that good. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that's something you've either experienced or you've seen or, you know, you know, that that becomes an opportunity, does it now? Well, again, it's, you know,
2: I mean, everything is attention to detail mm-hmm. and you don't, you've not been on stage too much. So for you, a heckle is a heckle. Whereas for me, I'd know different levels of heckle. You know, there's some heckle that's an interruption that might actually be trying to help you. There'd be another heckle that somebody's kind of a bit too drunk, but they're not massively drunk, so they're talkable too. There'd be another type of heckle where somebody's just blotted they have no fucking idea what's going on and for that person you're you know like you've got to know how to well, and there's somebody else that just wants to be funnier than you there's somebody else that just doesn't um doesn't like you and wants to undermine you so there's a different way of dealing with each of those kind of you know heckles so um so a heckle isn't just a heckle is i guess what i'm saying but I mean, ultimately, with any interruption to what you want to do, the only way to do it is to allow them enough space to do themselves over because (laughs) they're not the professional. They're not. It's like, you know, if if you're coaching, you've got somebody kind of, you know, being constantly annoying. They can either be worked with or they have to leave the room, you know, because you can't deal with that and like if somebody's absolutely drunk and you can't deal with that person like before now i have got an entire crowd right <laughs> to chant the indiana jones theme tune until somebody leaves that was one one tactic i had for a while because there's one guy that was just like an that. Shot. and the the reason i use that as an example is that the heckler isn't heckling you they're heckling the gig everybody's there to have a good time and nobody wants to hear some estate agent that can't talk from that just thinks he's funny nobody wants to hear that guy they've all paid to see the professional right mm-hmm. so you can say a couple of lines back to them and if they don't listen you can get everyone in that room to make that person leave you don't need to do a thing because and in, in the same thing in a classroom or in a coaching situation if you've got one person being a kind of absolute tool nobody else wants them to be a tool they're there to learn. They're there. If you're a good coach, they're there to learn. They've got, got a load of information. Like, you don't need to chuck that person out. Their, their peer group will sh- shut them up, you know, and and so turning everybody into the kind of headspace of, hey, this guy's ruining it for you guys. I mean, I'm absolutely fine, you know, for, for this to happen. I'm, But I've got, <laughs> you know, I've got good jokes. I've written them. We're all having a good time until this person kind of started up. So we can listen to this guy for a bit and it'll, it's getting old already, or you can just ask him to leave and then we carry on having fun times.
0: Yeah, like, uh, I mean, I would concur around the peer stuff and um, in my head, I'm now on stage and the whole audience is going duh, 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 till yeah. I leave, which is not good. Yeah. But uh, I like the, the playful way. I mean, and to what extent would that be like, so you go on stage, I guess you have some kind of plan or a, a direction of travel. I think I'm going to go here. What well, uh, in terms of script on stage. You yeah, you, script on and then at what points is there times? And I guess, is this something that evolves over time? So often in coaching, we have the plan, we stick to it. But actually, as we become more skillful, we actually adapt and recognize there's a heckler and Here's my solutions to this, and actually, I can use this moment to to make us feel like a team. And this person, you know, he's either in or he's out, or she's in or she's out. To what extent are you like adapting stuff, changing well, on the hoof? Hey, Will, you tell everyone what you're up to at Call Thirty
1: Seven. Hi, Fletch. We're a teamwear brand based in the Northeast, are the sister company of Oddballs. We've got the largest sports sublimation factory in the UK and we've produced for the biggest brands in Europe over the past seven years. But with Core 37, our in-house brand, you can now access those prices direct to the customer. Why would people use Core 37? Uh, If I was to pick three, flesh it would be our lead time of three to four weeks, our price, which is lower than anybody else in the industry, and the fact that we're made here in the UK. What's the stuff you're most proud of with Core 37? There's loads of stuff, but the the key one for me would be working for a company that, that genuinely believes in its own mission statement, which is to produce performance sportswear at an affordable price. And then underpinning that is the people, everybody who works here is involved in grassroots sport in some way. And so we genuinely care about what we're doing here. Fletch, why do you want to partner with Core37? Apart from the fact you're a Geordie, uh, great people uh, lots of people involved in sport, really affordable and top quality. Thanks for joining us Wilkie anyone who wants to find out more can go and have a play on their website at core-37.com or they can reach out directly to Tom at core-37.com A lot and you know, you've
2: got different types of adaptions you've got macro adaptions and micro adaptions So micro adaptions are happening all the time because every single audience is different if you're not making small changes depending on who that audience is you're not doing your job Yes. So, you know, if you get a big laugh, you're micro adapting to not, you know, you you stay off, the pause is bigger. If there's somebody talking in the back, you, you're you logging that to see whether you can, you don't address it yet because it would seem too rude, but you know they're there and you've got to do something else. If there's some people at the front that you kind of recognise or um, have kind of you speak to, you, you're logging all of these things so that when you're doing your set, all of these things are in play. And it obviously becomes intuitive at a certain point but so those are micro adaptions macro adaptions are when bigger things happen in the room so like that are kind of unusual and for a mat you know in in that situation you would have um you know different strategies but macro adaptions all micro adaptions all come from you knowing the context you know the context of that room better than anybody else. You've been on stage thousands upon thousands of times. You know what's appropriate in that room, you know what's inappropriate in that room. So you know intuitively the way that the gig can go. Now, if you make mistakes, you learn pretty fast (laughs) that, oh, that was inappropriate in that room, you know? And that can be anything from, I'm doing a gig in Greenwich in London. You know what? I'm quite happy swearing in Greenwich in London. I'm quite happy to maybe just, not talk about going to a grammar school, maybe, or anything like that. might not like that. Um, you know, you play, or if I'm playing a gig in um, in Liverpool, I might say Bath <laughs> rather than Bath. Because yeah. you know what? That'll piss them off. It, like, for no reason. They could be loving me, and they hear the word Bath, and then I, like, oh, he's this cunt. Yeah. You know, like, little things that, like, you'd be on stage, and you'd be, you'd be saying Bath. And you'd be like, why did it go cold? And then you talk to another comic afterwards. You, t- you know, and there are loads of things that you might not see until you make that mistake. And then if you if you're looking, but but if, if you're looking for it constantly on it, then you you find that. But you have to, you know, it's like anything else. It's like attention. You know, you have to give attention to everything. To so you are you are adapting all the time. But um,
0: what if you had a new set? Would you go? play it somewhere, would you build it up from scratch or yeah, are you adding it in? So are you going actually I'm gonna, I'm gonna add in five minutes to my to my set that I know is generally pretty good. (laughs) Well
2: that depends on how much you care about the audience having a good time. So like you can go on to a gig and you can like because as a comedian you don't really care. It doesn't really matter if you do well or not. (laughs) So where are your priorities? If you if you've done it and you know you can do it. It doesn't really matter. Like you know, you're good at it. So if you've got a load of new material, you have got a ten-minute gig, say, and you need to try ten minutes of new material uh, that that night, you might not be that good, <laughs> but you'll learn from what was good in that and what was bad. And the the act, uh, the the um the audience might not have that good a time. Whereas if you want to, for the audience to enjoy themselves, you might do come on, do a bit of tried and tested material, then do a little bit of new. And if it goes well, you might do a little bit more new. If that doesn't go well, you might go back to some tried and tested material. And you'll kind of play that kind of wave of making sure the audience are having a good time, but also kind of trying out some new material. You know, so it's about, you know, and obviously if you're a big enough and famous enough comedian, some people are just delighted that you're there. I mean. You know, I remember um, before when it was OK for him to come, Louis C.K. coming to the gig. And, when, and before that, when Eddie Izzard was around or, um, you know, Catherine Ryan, people are so absolutely delighted that that person has turned up on stage. They could say anything and they love it, yeah. you know, to the extent that those big comedians actually have to be shit at the beginning to lower people's expectations so that they get a proper read on their material. So they've got to slow everything down, shut up, let everything be a bit flat for a bit and then get into the material
0: so they can get a proper read on, on whether it's good or not. Like that's one of the more. That was something I was going to ask about actually. So at the start and the end, and I remember speaking to a magician who spoke about like, I would sense where the room is and I would go meet them there. And I would gradually, if they were low, I might build them up. If they were up here, I might play around with this stuff. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And then also kind of there's this sense in sport that if you have a reasonably good start and the kids are active and they're getting into it and they leave with, you know, this bit at the end that gets them more excited for next week, a bit like a box set, then you can get away with a bit of shit in the middle, quite frankly. And I wonder to what extent you think that applies is how aware you have start and end. But then you're talking about, I mean,
2: right there, you're not talking about coaching, you're talking about neurobiology you're talking about, you know, the peak end rule, you know, the way that human beings remember things is what's the start like, what's the end like? That's why people watch Grand Prix. Nobody watches Grand Prix because they're interesting. It's cars going round and round the track. People watch Grand Prix because the beginning's interesting. The end's interesting. You, You know, and the end reason you're watching in the middle is because there might be a crash. That's it. Like nobody else is having a great time. It's just like, but I mean, unless you're really into the detail, but, but it's the same thing. It's like the peak-end rule it's like, you want the end to be good, the beginning to be good. And in the middle, they don't really care. I mean, I've mean, i seen, you know, if you look at Daniel Kahneman's work on the peak-end rule and some of the work that was done on, like, you know, if you see a um, orchestra and that orchestra is absolutely rubbish and flat for the 90, first 90 minutes. But in the last five minutes, it does something absolutely extraordinary. People come out of that performance I go, oh, that was great. That was amazing. Did you, did you see that? If they're extraordinary for 90 minutes and they're flat at the last five minutes, people will come out and go, oh, that was all right. right. Because that's the way the human brain works. It only sees the peak and it only sees the end. How good does it get and what was the end like? Yeah, um, and it's yeah. the same with stand-up. It's like, you, sh- you, you, if you're likable at the beginning and you do well at the beginning and then you're good at the end, people will think they've had a great time. Like most people, most big stand-ups you go see in a theatre. If you walked in for the middle and then stayed and left
0: just before the end, you'd be like, oh, "That was alright." <laughs> yeah, 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 fascinating. I, uh, <clears throat> and I was fascinating. I mean, we chatted off- offline a bit earlier about like how you just you just got into lots of stuff. Yeah, you, you managed to pass your 11 plus. You went to uni, and then you suddenly became interested in the brain and psychology and philosophy and and I guess I'm, I'm curious about, like, I'm curious about the best. So, like, who are, like, the super coaches? Who are the super comedians? I mean, is it this kind of relentless journey towards mastery that you never complete, which can be really frustrating as well for people? It frustrates me sometimes when I think, God, yeah, you know, maybe there's another 98.4% left of coaching for you to complete Rusty. Uh, <laughs> what's that like? I mean, is that how it feels being like in this world of, um, and I'm thinking again about like, Eddie Izzard does, you know, he's, he's not even getting to his performance and he's practicing two a night, he's practicing two the next day, two the next, two, you know, yeah. to then play Wembley with Rusty.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, I so the people that I see that are working at the highest level, there is a workmanlike diligence to it in the sense of, they're just doing what they do, you know, and they've got a good rhythm. They found themselves in the right place and they're working hard. You know, it's like the Jerry Seinfeld kind of, you know, apocryphal story. I don't know how true it is. I think it is true because he tells it himself, but um, you know, of going to a cafe, he'd write in a cafe. uh, No, so he'd write at home and he'd go to a cafe halfway through the day and, He'd just be working in the morning. And then he sat in the cafe and watches a load of kind of workmen get up and go to their afternoon shift and go, why am I not doing that? Why am I not not working a full day? I just think I'm working four hours, that's it. And then just started working double the amount. And the people that I know that are good at what they do, great at what they do, is they've got the privilege of being able to work full-time on it. And they do work full-time on it, you know? And those are the people that are really good at the art. And you can have some people that are very funny comedians that aren't that good at the art, you know, that aren't they don't care too much about it. They're very good, you know, and you'd see them on on um, uh, TV and whatnot. I mean, a lot of the time you're the famous people, or the, the people that you know aren't always the best comedians, because what usually happens is somebody's very, very good and they get noticed and then they get on TV and then they start practicing live work. So they might be brilliant on TV, but then you'd go and see them doing a national tour and they've not really practised. They've not really done it. I mean, the people that really care, like Dara O'Brien, you know, the guy from Mock the Week, the Irish yeah. guy, um, came along to the club quite a bit for a time. And what was remarkable about Dara is that, because he'd been on TV for about four years, he hadn't done a live gig in a while. And he's one of the most nervous people I've seen before a gig. He was only playing to 100 people in that room. They didn't even know it was gonna be there. He was pacing up and down. like no, and he was great, but the amount of effort that he went into to be good that night, it mattered to him. He, he was nervous about it and he cared. And, you know, like you have to stay relevant. I'm sure it's the same thing of like in sports. If you've got somebody that gets good, they're a coach and they're working with people or they're a, you know, they're a performance athlete. Is that like if you get successful, your commitments start changing <laughs> and you lose your edge. You stop being good if you're giving a load of talks about coaching and you're not actually coaching you come back to a year later and you're not as good anymore you know and the people that are really on their game are doing it diligently day in day out and know what they do so i mean to you Romesh Ranganathan is somebody that has stayed very in touch with now i keep gigging and i keep doing it and i stay live you know i mean harry hill came back to live recently because of that reason um Stuart Lee is a good example Catherine Ryan keeps doing stuff like you know there are um you can tell the good people because for them it's not about necessarily you do improve but you just it's not about improving you don't reach a point of perfection you have to constantly stay alert it's like a muscle it's like any other muscle you've got to stay fit and conditioned you know it's not about being perfect because you've got to be able to respond to What's happening in the day to day, and that's changing all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, one of the things I talk about is like my karaoke moments. Like, I'm, I'm a terrible singer, and uh, that thought of me about to sing karaoke is usually means I'm probably going to coach quite well, but I, I might change it to a Dara O'Brien moments uh, from now on. <laughs> sounds like he was, uh, uh, he was pretty nervous. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. I actually and it triggered me on a I went for a walk with a coach who just got a job in 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 one of the premiership clubs, and he said, oh, I thought I was going to find this quite easy, but uh, Rusty, I'm I'm miles out of my depth. I've got loads to learn and just that mindset. And by the way, he'll he'll be doing a great job already, and he'll be an excellent coach. But that that's a really common thing. you know, the coach that feels a bit like an imposter or you know Dara Brian, you're thinking he'll he'll be this'll be easy for him in front of hundred people, but actually
1: cause he oh, yeah.
0: about it, because it, it's something you know that's really meaningful to him and he wants to do a good job then You've heard of Kruger Dunning, right? <coughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. there'll yeah, be a bit of Kruger Dunning going on in coaching.
2: Yeah. So, you know, any I mean it's very similar to imposter syndrome, but I think in any in any um uh field Anybody that is good at what they do do not does not think that they're good at what they do. Or they might have moments where they do, but in general, they're always trying to improve and always trying to stay, find different ways of working.
0: And they're quite diligent. And where does coaching fit in? So, you know, is, is it that uh, they all, you know, there's a, it sounds like there's a lot of deliberate practice. It sounds like you're getting feedback from other people, either in smaller groups or, at Wembley when no-one laughs at Rusty's first joke. (sighs) Um, And and, and do people have coaches? Would you have someone that you would go, actually, I'd love you to come and observe me do this, and actually, I'd I'd really appreciate your feedback on this.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the mythic ideas of stand-up is it's very kind of, like, you know, um, frontier land. You do it on your own, it's your personality, you're out there just being funny, being yourself. And um, that's a romantic idea of it. Um, I think that you can, you know, certain acts are quite naturally funny and do do that and hit the ground running. Ross Noble, Peter McKay, um strike me as people that kind of, they do work, but they're quite natural at what they do. So they haven't had to kind of, but even somebody like Ross Noble started doing stand-up when he was like 15 and other stand-ups, you know, will give you feedback and you'll work with them and you're talking about stuff quite naturally because you're passionate about it if you're if you're good at something you're constantly talking you're constantly interested you want to find out more so somebody does a joke that you like you go all right how did you so is that a new one or is that you know you you're interested you want to find out so what are you doing googling uh, uh, ross noble
0: no No. uh, no i love ross noble and i was actually thinking of I was on my hand, I was writing down the comedians you haven't mentioned that I love. So you've ticked off lots of them. <laughs> so Ross Noble was one. And then I had a, a moment where I couldn't uh, work out. I, I forgot that Noel Feeding was in The Mighty Boosh.
2: Ah, right, okay. Uh, I, I,
0: and then the other one was Partridge. So uh, I was just trying to, in my head, because as you were, you're bringing back a lot of memories for me, you know, of... of People like Jack D and, and Lee Evans and and the like. And then I was thinking, oh, who do I think he's missed?
2: <laughs> well, no. um, I've never met Steve Coogan. I mean, I know Tim Keywell that works with Steve a bit. Um, and I mean, Steve seems like he did do a lot of live early days. I mean, I don't remember if you remember. Um,
0: he did, uh, oh, what was his character, his drag character? Um, I've seen him live a couple of times and it was pretty cool and the other person you missed is Bob Mortimer
2: Oh, Bob Mortimer's great
0: what a a guy, do you know how Bob
2: Mortimer got into stand-up, do you know how he got into comedy?
0: Uh, No, he's from up north so he's from near me, from like Middlesbrough so, you're going to tell me It's the most mental story of
2: how he got into comedy, most mental right, he had moved to London to go out with a, a girl that had left him shortly after and he got this deposit on a flat right and he was just in london he'd never done comedy i think he was i can't remember what he he did he was in sales or something i was just you know regular office job had never thought of doing comedy ever right then he gets a knock on the door one day and it's jim reeves right or jim Wah, right Vic reeves um and vic's like uh, jim's like oh, is this so-and-so's address? Oh, yeah, no, that is... She's not here, no, it's not a thing. And they didn't know each other, never met, n- nothing to do with each other. They ended up going out for a drink, and Jim Jim was said, uh, listen, I do this show. Would you like to help out on the show? Um, And Bob went, yeah, uh, all right, I help out. And then that was it. Like, it was a random knock on the door. They'd never known each other. He'd never had an idea of doing comedy at all. And was part of Vic's show then, or Jim's show. And then um, it kind of all grew from there. And like, I mean, somebody that's absolutely brilliant at what he does. I mean, the same thing with Paul Whitehouse. Paul Whitehouse was just Harry Enfield's painter and decorator, I think. And they were just having a laugh together and coming up with character ideas. And Paul Whitehouse started that. And he, ne- he never wanted to do stand-up or jokes <laughs> or anything like that. Harry Enfield did. But it's fascinating. Anyway, Bob's great. I think Bob's one of the, you know... Uh, kind of, I don't know, have you heard Atletico Mints? Do you listen to that?
0: Uh, the podcast's good, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah, the other person, uh, Pauline Carf. Paul and Pauline Carf was who you were trying to think of then for, uh, Steve, Paul and for Steve. For Steve Coogan. And then the other one that I was thinking of, and I think he's a genius on, Would I Lie To You? In fact, I think both team captains are geniuses, is, is a Peep Show Man. Oh, David Mitchell? Yes.
2: Yeah, 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 he's great. Yeah, David. <laughs> Right. And
0: so I was curious, I mean, uh, another thing I'm interested in is like, how much do people share? So do they go, look, this is my joke, I'm not, you know, or, you know, the big reveal and then people go, oh, I can adapt that joke. And how, how does how does that, like, exist in your world? Um,
2: It used to be quite common. Like, there weren't really individual jokes. So, although, sorry, there weren't really individual snets. So a performer, before the 1980s, maybe, a performers would get together beforehand and say, oh, are you gonna do the custard pie joke? Yeah, okay, you do that. I'll, I'll do um, mother-in-law going to the shoe shop. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be doing I have done that for years anyway. And they'd literally apportion out jokes and make sure that each other wasn't doing each other's jokes. Right. And it wasn't until Billy Connolly actually, who was doing a lot more kind of his own stuff, um, uh, uh, you know personal stuff where this idea of doing individual I mean what's his name Alan was um uh, what's his name anyway um, Tony Allen no what's his name the uh, anyway um, but before kind of the 1980s people weren't doing their own material as much and then when the comedy store opened and Alexis Sale and there was a lot more in the alternative comedy of kind of you'd have um your own material so and once that came about being a joke thief is a was became an idea so it's like why are you stealing that person's material you know i mean ben elton for example was looked down upon in the comedy community for quite a lot because it was thought that he pretty much nicked alexis rhythm you know and profit you know made it a lot more kind of commercial and profitable um and uh but that's even just his vernacular, his way of talking, his way of being, which, you know, isn't even stealing somebody's joke. <laughs> yeah,
0: Alexi um, Sale, I would have added Alexi Sale to my list. And, and and Dave Allen, I think, is the... Dave we- Allen, that was it. Dave Allen. I'm, I'm doing well. I was, I was also interested in, like, your... Something you said earlier when we chatted was, like, it's, it's just really about reducing the variables. Mm. So what do you mean by that? And is that... I guess is that tied in with this kind of constant practice and iterating and the marginal gains type stuff?
2: Yeah, I mean every second of intelligent work that you can do on a set or performing, the better. So what you've really got to do is you've just got to break it down. I mean, that's marginal gains. So you've got to if you're performing, how do you come on stage? Like, so okay, let's give you example. Paul Foote, I don't know if you know who Paul Foote is. Um, brilliant comedian, bizarre parakeet of the comedy world, but very funny. Um he did this gig called America's uh what was it? Um Last Comic Standing in America, right? He'd been gigging for about 10, 15 years in London, in England and um around the UK, and this gig in Las Vegas, he was going to perform on one night to more people than he'd performed to for his entire career, like millions, hundred millions of people, tens of millions of people, right? And it was in Las Vegas, and it was massive, right? And halfway through his set, the sound went, right? The microphone cut off, and at the end of that set, it was off. It was off for a good minute, live in front of tens of millions of people, right? And um, and, and he went through with a like standing ovation. Like, right? how did he manage that? Well, the m- week before, by, as luck would have it, he was doing a gig at the Bloomsbury Theatre and the same thing happened, right? And what happened in that gig is that it was going great. And the mic went. And so he let the stage people figure it out and he went to the back of the stage and just kind of let them figure it out. And he came and then he came back to the mic and it was a bit flat. And he was asking, like, uh, you know, another comic, why was that flat? It was, I was going great. And then, I mean, it, it was just the mic that went and then it was flat. And the comic was like, well, look, you look nervous back there. You know, well, I wasn't nervous. Yeah, I know, but you look nervous because you weren't, you're on stage, but you weren't on stage. So on this big gig, when the mic went, he is performing still. He's doing big pirouettes and doing lar- being larger than life. And the, the crowd are loving it because not only is he still performing, but he's performing in against adversity. Yeah. And so that when he gets back on. he's been given another minute to impress the crowd and he has taken that extra minute to impress them so that when he does pick up the the microphone again, he needs to do almost nothing to be absolutely adored because he has overcome adversity. So it's the difference between that marginal gain is the difference between having the knowledge of what happened there, learning from it and then bringing it and buttering it back in so that you know that it's there. And so you might look at that and say, well, you couldn't have... um, you couldn't have predicted that it's like but that's you there have been many acts that wouldn't even have noticed that they didn't do that well straight after and wouldn't have asked anybody and wouldn't have put the attention to detail and so a marginal gain really is paying attention to detail for a new variable that is a new variable the mic went and he was just
0: lucky that that variable had played out the week before Man, i'm so glad it played out the week before quite frankly, <laughs> i'm nervous about wembley still
2: the thing is it would have been it would have been fine at Las Vegas, but it just wouldn't have been electric.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
2: that's, the, the, the marginal gain isn't about kind of necessarily preventing your heart attack from being kind of heckled and booed. It's often creating something special rather than something that's just very good.
0: You know, that's where the
2: marginal gains come in.
0: Yeah, And, and, and I think it's the mindset of like opportunity to learn, like this is a, I could just leave this and walk off and not ask anyone what they noticed and how it could be better, but actually my mindset around stuff that doesn't go so well, which, which probably, I mean, I'm really curious. And, and maybe the last thing to touch on is like the mental side of this. So you spoke a lot. You said confidence is really important. I'm like, I'm nervous. If I'm honest, even though I'm just imagining Wembley and, um, about this kind of dying on stage and actually it's something uh, Claire Murphy said to me so when they're storytelling part of the training is you do this exercise where it's inevitable that you'll die on stage and there's really no solution to it and you'll you'll experience it and then they'll kind of debrief it with you and and help you understand it and what are the possible solutions and yeah, and look, it would, it would be something that would be quite common in coaching. You know, I've definitely died on stage a lot. And uh, so, <laughs> yeah, where does this all fit in, I guess? And I know it's something you, know. again, when we chatted earlier, you definitely sound like you're interested in the brain and how it works. And where have you got to at the moment with the kind of the, the, the mental skills required to be a comedian? Mate, you, all you gotta do—I'll I'll give
2: you two words about dying. Give you two words, and it'll explain everything. Donald Trump, like, right. Donald Trump is the perfect example of how to die, and <laughs> like, and and not, and let it fall off you. If you watch Donald Trump be absolutely destroyed by a journalist. You wouldn't know it if you're watching him you had no idea because if you're watching him without hearing the journalists or what they're saying i'm totally fine i'm doing this and this is absolutely fine and it does seem absolutely insane if you hear the journalist you go this guy's absolutely bonkers he's, he's he's lost it you know and obviously it's playing out in a particularly insane way right now in the factor of a refusal to um kind of admit defeat but that kind of bulletproof um, confidence is what you have to be on stage the audience you think about what the audience want the audience want to have a good time right the audience want to know that you're fine if they think you're not fine they can't have a good time they're worried about you so your job is to be fine on stage that's your job this isn't that's not part of what the training is it's your job right it's like if you so your job is to be confident your job is to exude confidence if, if things aren't going well, fine, impact inside, right? But don't show it and you'll find ways not to show it. And the thing to remember is that it doesn't actually, like, it's very hard to die. It's very hard to die. The only time that you die is when you think you're dying and you look like you're dying. That's the thing in people's heads when they think of people com- comedians on stage dying, it's the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario is the feedback loop of the audience think you're shit and you think you're shit <laughs> and, you, and you look like you know your shit and then the audience know that you know your are shit and then the audience are angry because you're wasting their time and you know you're, if you're shit, what are you doing on stage? And then they're angry and then you're mortified that they're angry because they know that you are shit and like it's this negative feedback loop. But if you're confident confident on stage, you short circuit that feedback loop because the audience think this guy is shit, right? And you go, well, I'm not shit. They go, oh, maybe he's not. (laughs) That's it. Because most people's opinion isn't led by them thinking, like if you're being perfectly normal on stage and you're just talking, people move on you know, it's that peak end rule. Most people are just kind of like, oh, there's something else. I'm easily distracted. There's something else happening. But if you pause to think about how shit you are, <laughs> you just elongate that kind of that moment. So when people think of, you know, I'm sure it's it's the same as sport. Like when I was co- coached in sport, I used to have a tendency to, like if something went wrong, I'd stop and panic. It's like, no, you carry on running. That happened in the past, but it doesn't have to happen the next moment. If you stop, you definitely fuck things up if you stop 100 it makes a mistake but you've just got to keep running you just got to keep going you know um if you if you think that you're not going to do it then you definitely won't do it whereas if you keep trying to be funny and you are you are confident there's a there's a chance that the next joke will end you don't know
0: and, and by the way in no way am i endorsing to behave like donald trump um <laughs> however I, I get what you mean and, uh, and it was interesting, I remember being with Fletch once and uh, it looks fairly chaotic this session. And one of the coaches says to him, oh, you know, I'm amazed how calm you are. And he's like, I'm not fucking calm inside. Yeah. Like, I'm Donald <laughs> Trump on the outside. I'm, yeah. I'm John Fletcher yeah. on the inside. Um, last thing, and I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested, like, so obviously... Um, your world is similar to our world, really, being impacted heavily by what's gone on. What's, uh, what's your hopes and dreams for, for comedy into 2021? Do you think it'll adapt? Do you think it'll be, like something that happens outside, or what do you think is going to happen? Um, I think there'll be a lot of outside gigs from
2: uh, March, April onwards, and I've got a feeling that. Um, September October there'll be gigs from you know I think there'll be gigs inside socially distance gigs inside I know most people are tabling tours for April May the worst case scenario July August so um, whether that's the case you don't know I mean this government is not very I mean I always think <laughs> whenever this government says that they're doing something next week in my head I administer Hofstadt's law to it and go right. Well, that'll probably be next month, then. Um, like they're just incompetent, so you have to. It's almost like having a contractor that says, I'll, I'll, I'll finish the garden uh next week, and just like, all right, well, I, I won't plan to go away for six weeks then because that'll probably take that long. So, yeah. but I, I, I mean, you know, stand up comedy is um, you know, congregating in groups together is a very um, it's a big part of human interaction um, because it's very, it means a lot for people to be on the same page with other groups of people. And like laughing with people is, um, you know, it, it's very releasing it was to listen to music with people, all of that. So um, crowd dynamics are a big way that human beings um, feel normal and um, have joy in their life so I I don't think there's any kind of long-term things Um, but I just think that um, there'll have to be a lot of vaccinations for people to be okay to but I I do think that people will just jump back in very quickly and when you think about how quickly it stopped I think it will start just as quickly.
0: Yeah agree. I mean and I'm with you like singing and laughing together and all the Things that I think connected us back in the day on the plains and the prairies are the things that are still important to us and create that sense of belonging. I think it would be pretty important. What And if people want to reach out, uh, where can they find you? Um, uh, At Barry Ferns
2: on various things. um, uh, BarryFerns.com. I've got and uh, I'm often at the club Angel Comedy in London. It's um, seven nights a week um every night of the year pretty much and um uh yeah when it's open come along and uh yeah i'm kind of i'm all over it right i write i'm a podcast called ambient tales for traumatized children which is an adhd inspired um non-linear podcast of kind of music and comedy and um kind of social commentary and stuff uh yeah so that's now, me. what was the podcast called again Ambient tales for
0: traumatized children. Cool, mate. Awesome. I'll, I'll share that st- stuff as well. And I'm definitely taking you up on the offer of the comedy club I'm in. I'm well, i
2: I've, I've,
0: I, you should come along and do a gig, man. You should come along and uh, uh, like.
2: Um, oh. I want to. I want to see, see whether I can make it as bad in real life as it is in
0: your head, because you, you've got a very kind of talk yeah, about it traumatizing. It wouldn't be hard to be as bad. Although what I would say is no. Every so often I clean the drawers out, I find it like my my wedding speech went quite well. So worst case, I could just pull those cards out and, and <laughs> my wedding speech and hope that the audience is really similarly drunk and willing to laugh <laughs> at anything. So, uh, yeah. Mate, look, thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and great to connect. And uh, I'm I'm hoping uh, we stay in touch on this. And, uh, mate, look, stay safe and... Uh, Hopefully, in a few more weeks, months, years, we'll be back to uh, normal. We'll be vaccinated, and then
2: uh, kind of like it's a brave new world. Bill Gates will all, apparently will be controlling the world, or something. Is it like yeah. uh, the vaccinations or something?
0: Yeah, heard. My, I, my mother would, my mother would believe that. So, yeah, that would be definitely true. <laughs> there. May have a great day. Thanks, man. And you.